as members of the family of God, all of us, both in this place and around the world, let us listen to the Word of God from the 12th chapter of Hebrews, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you, I, we, will not grow weary and lose heart. May we join hands and hearts together as we come to this time of prayer. Father, we thank you for this word, and we are reminded of the fact that those worshiping with us today are more in number than we can see with our eyes. That the great host of heaven itself gazes upon this field of mortal combat in which we are still involved in the struggle. And they cheer us on. They pray for us. And our Lord and Savior himself, who endured the cross, despising its shame, and has become for us not only an example, but a source of inspiration and encouragement, we know is with us through his Spirit. Bless every hurting heart, every troubled mind, every sick body, every troubled home, every business, every pursuit of noble endeavor. We pray, Father, for those who are sick, for those who are bereaved. For those who are not here because they can't be here, we pray. As we pray for those who could be here but are not, revive their hearts as we pray you would revive ours in this time of worship and praise. Bless those in the Midwest suffering such horrible tragedies. Comfort them, strengthen them, and may we, through our offerings and our gifts, be a source of practical help to each and all of them. Bless this service. We dedicate it to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated, please. A number of years ago, Martha and I were with uh, Billy Graham and some of the team, Cliff Barras in particular, a number of years ago after they had returned from one of the Graham Crusades in Europe, and Cliff said to us, the greatest congregational singing we have heard anywhere in the world is in Wales. And I said that to this choir this morning, and they are certainly noble representatives of that compliment. What a compliment it was and is from someone who has heard people sing literally all over the world.
I'm so pleased that they're here. They got in late yesterday. If they go to sleep during the sermon, that's okay. They've got jet lag and they've heard it once. You better stay awake or I'll call your name. But uh, we're so glad that they're here. And they're giving a concert tonight at 6 o'clock at the First Baptist Church. You're invited to attend. They come out of a noble Christian heritage. One of the great revivals of all time took place in Wales, beginning in about 1900 through 1905. It was a great sweeping move of the Spirit of God. A man, a layman by the name of Evan Roberts, was the primary spokesperson for God though many other prominent Christian pastors and leaders were both influences upon and influenced by that great awakening. Hundreds of thousands of people came to know Christ as Savior. Churches were revived. In fact, one of the stories out of the Great Welsh Revival is how so many thousands of coal miners were converted that they took their faith back to the coal pits with them and they put Scripture up on, on the walls, and there would be singing in the coal pits. And also, the pony that pulled the coal carts, they, they fell behind in their work, and the reason was because the ponies couldn't understand what their masters were saying because they'd been converted and they'd given up cursing. To just show you that real revival reaches into the coal pits. It reaches into every area of life and makes a difference there. That's a true story. This is a great choir. Listen to them as they sing for us. Our friends from Wales may not uh, know it yet, but we in San Antonio are in the midst of a great event, an exciting event, the Olympic Festival that began on Friday really began years ago in terms of planning and preparation and work. And uh, we'll be going on all this week and concluding next Sunday. It's an exciting time. Many of us were there on Friday evening when over 60,000 people gathered in the Alamo Dome for the opening ceremonies. Thinking of this event, I wanted to speak this morning on the subject of the Christian message in the Olympic Games. The original Olympic Games began in... 776 B.C. Some historians say even a few hundred years before that. They were not confined to the plains of Olympia. They had uh, pan-Hellenic games that took place all over uh, the Greek Empire. And particularly in Corinth, every two years, they had the Isthmian Games, much like the Olympic Festival is uh, conducted every two years. The the games, athletics, were very much a part of the life of the ancient Greeks. The Olympic Games declined and ceased about 300 A.D. and then were revived in Athens in 1896 and have been held every four years since except uh, during uh, some World War interruptions. I believe the Apostle Paul was a frequent spectator, if not a participant, in the original Olympic Games. Because he, like our Lord, used examples from everyday life to communicate the gospel. As you know, Jesus took everyday, ordinary, even commonplace things and lifted them to a new level and gave them spiritual meaning, such as light and water and bread 
and salt and seed and a boy leaving home and a man getting mugged on the Jericho Road. Contemporary events that Jesus took and used as vehicles for communicating the good news. Well, Paul did the same thing. He used experiences out of his life. Most of his illustrations had to do with community life, for Paul was an urban man. And he obviously lifted much from the Olympic Games. For example, in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, in the twelfth verse, he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's one of the original Olympic events. It's taking place here in San Antonio this week. We wrestle not, he said. And he was speaking to people who were familiar with that sport and who, like he, had observed it, maybe participated in it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. In the 12th chapter of Hebrews, in the first verse, as I read you a few moments ago, the passage of Scripture, when when the Bible says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance, with fortitude, the race that is set before us. Let us run, he said. In 2 Timothy, in the 4th chapter, in the 7th verse, Paul's final words to young Timothy and his words to us, he says, I have fought a good fight. Boxing was one of the original sports, and it is one of those that will take place here, and I plan to be there and see it on Friday or Saturday. I fought a good fight, he said. I have finished the course, the race course. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I did not drop the baton that was handed to me to carry. And then, in the marvelous passage of Scripture to the Corinthians, who were very familiar with the Isthmian games, he wrote in the ninth chapter of the first letter that he wrote, 1 Corinthians, these words. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. For everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man Beating the air. Shadow boxing. In the six sentences that precede that passage of Scripture, Paul says this phrase, writes this phrase six times. This phrase, that I might win, 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 that I might win. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one gets the prize. I want to say some things that are really very obvious about athletics and life. But sometimes the obvious is overlooked, taken for granted. I'm going to make some simple statements that I think have some profound possibilities when applied to my life and to yours. I hear Paul saying, among other things, that you, that you can't win 
if you don't begin. You can't win if you don't begin. No one ever ran a race sitting still. You've got to get up to the starting line, and when the gun is sounded, start. You'll never finish if you don't begin. Now I want to apply this to all of us here today in one way or another. I know Christians, fine people who love God and who study the Bible are devoted Bible students, but who also translate that study and their Bible learning into ministries to other people. They teach in Sunday school. They serve as counselors at youth camp or junior high camp that begins today. They sing in the choir. They go on mission trips. I know a lot of people who love the Bible and study the Bible who endeavor to practice it in daily life. But I must also say that I know some people that that's all they do. They're professional Bible students. They go to every Bible study. They've got notes, voluminous notes. But you ask them to teach Sunday school, too busy. Ask them to get involved in ministry, I'm studying. We're supposed to get into the Word, they say. That's true. We are to get into the Word, the Word of God. But more important than that, the Word is to get into us. And then the Word is to move through us to other people because Jesus did say, go into the world. Martha and I uh, exercise regularly four or five times a week and we go up to Alamo Heights High School track and Martha walks, uh, and she walks very briskly, and I, I run rather slowly but fast enough to pass her occasionally. And, uh, anyway, we were up there. It's been a number of years ago now uh, when Martha and I were there on a Saturday, and there was a fellow there that uh, had this class that he was teaching how to uh, get into an exercise program. And about eight or, eight or ten, they were young adults and adults. And uh, they all had all their gear on. I mean, they had the, the new suits, the sweatsuits. Uh, they had, uh, had the new, uh, new shoes, sweatbands, plastic water bottles. They had the whole thing. Boy, I thought these people are going to eat me up around this track here in a few moments. But as I would pass them, they were standing still over there, and their instructor was talking to them about how to run. And, and how, you know, how to run on the balls of your feet, but how not to bounce. And then he was showing them how you're supposed to stretch, you know, and all of this before you run. And then the calisthenics that you go through to, to loosen up and all of that. He talked and talked and talked for about 30 minutes. And they left. <laughs> they never ran one time. And they all left up. Boy, I'm getting in shape. Took my plastic water bottle and all, and sweatband didn't have any sweat on it. Look, my friend, 
If you're not sweating, you're not serving. And you're not growing if you're not going. You don't win if you don't begin. Nobody ever learned to swim sitting on the bank. You can read all the books in the world about swimming. You can go to the Olympics. I watched some of it on television last night. Exciting. You can read all the books on swimming. But if you're going to swim, eventually you've got to get wet. You've got to get into the water. You're not going to win if you don't begin. You're not going to swim if you don't begin. There's some people, I think there's some Christians like the fellow I knew in the seminary. He said he was never going to preach until he graduated from the seminary and knew everything about it, about preaching, about theology. Well, you can guess it. He never preached. And if he ever did, I'm glad I didn't have to hear it. No, 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 no. Christianity is something that you learn on the practice field. Surely you study. Surely you pray. Surely you prepare. But there is no substitute for sweating, for moving out. The early disciples didn't know as much about Christ as you and I know when they began to preach. They did not have the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian history. They didn't even have a Bible. All they had was the Old Testament and the words of Jesus that had been communicated to them by word of mouth. They didn't have a Bible for 200 years. But the most powerful age in the history of the church was when individuals told others what Jesus Christ had done in their life. Are you doing that? And now to those of you who may not be Christians, you haven't begun in the faith yet. You haven't trusted the Lord yet. Let me say just a word of encouragement to you. How much do you need to know To be a Christian, you have to know enough to know that you need him. That's all. You don't have to know all 66 books of the Bible. You don't have to memorize any scripture. All you need to begin is to recognize your need of him, to trust him. You say, well, Buckner, I don't understand it. I don't either. I don't understand it. I'm still studying it. I still read every day. I want to know more about it. I would be hesitant to spend much time listening to someone who claimed they did know everything about it. No, I don't know everything about it. You do not have to understand everything to experience it. You do not have to understand everything to experience it. I don't understand television. I couldn't make one of my life dependent upon it. But I experience it. I don't understand electric lights. But I can see by them. I still turn on the switch. I can experience light. By faith. I don't understand the human digestive system but I'm going to eat today, the Lord willing. No, understanding is not essential to an experience. So come on this morning and make that commitment on the basis of what you already know in your heart and what you already feel in your spirit. Respond to what God is doing in your heart and in your life. Another another quick word at this point 
Some people feel that the validity of the Christian experience is on the basis of some dramatic events that accompany it. That unless the whistles and bells and the fireworks are all sounding, then you've not been converted. Never, ever judge the validity of a relationship on the basis of the dramatic circumstances that may or may not surround it. They have nothing to do with it. Some people are just by nature more vociferous, more expressive, more extroverted in their personalities. Others are more introverted, more personal, quieter, subjective. The key is not the emotional content, but the experience with the person. The relationship with Jesus Christ. So begin. Begin today. If you've never begun before to follow Him, to trust Him, to acknowledge Him. In a few moments when the invitation is given, start toward this finish line to say, I will do it. I will make that decision. You'll never win if you don't begin. You'll never win, secondly, if you run in the wrong direction. And that's possible. Paul knew that and saw some Christians who were doing that. So he wrote about it in the book of Galatians. Wrote to the churches in Galatia this word. You were running a good race. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Man, you started out like gangbusters. You were on fire for God. What happened to you? What cut you off? What detoured you? Well, Paul says that what detoured those folks was they got caught up in legalism again. There were folks saying, well, you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be a Christian. Yes, you've got to trust Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised. Paul said, that's not the way it is. You're not saved by any kind of works. If you are, salvation is not a gift. And we're not saved by grace. You see, Jesus doesn't need any help to save us. He doesn't need the help of water baptism or communion or speaking in tongues to save us. Don't get cut off from by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now who cut you off in your Christian walk? Jesus talks about such folks in the 13th chapter of Matthew, well, in other Gospels too, and he tells the parable of the sower that went out to sow the seed. It's called the parable of the sower. It ought not to be called that. It's the parable of the soil. The seed is the incorruptible Word of God. The soil is your heart and mine, and you and I determine the soil in our own spirits. We are in charge of the tilling of the soil of our own hearts. Therefore, we are responsible for our response to the seed of the Word of God. Jesus said, well, it's sown out there. Some of it falls on the hard ground, the birds come take it away. Some of it falls on the ground, and the thorns, it grows up a little bit, and the thorns quench it out. 
They strangled the life out of it. And then later he explains that, and he says the things that strangle the spiritual life is the cares of this world, hear him, and the deceitfulness of riches. Not the evil of riches, the deceitfulness of them. Their power to deceive us into thinking that because we're well off materially or physically or emotionally, that we're well off spiritually. Here's Jesus saying exactly what Paul is saying. Don't let somebody quench the life out of you, out of your spirit, out of your service. You ask any pastor, uh, this fine lady right here on the front row, her husband's a pastor at the church in, in Wales. We visited together a few moments ago before this service. And I'm sure he's had this same experience. You, you talk to any pastor who's been pastor of the same church for about five years, and I can tell you one of the things that's the biggest concern in the world to that pastor, and that is people that you know, you know when they came to the Lord, or you know when they came in a commitment of their life to the Lord, and when they were active in the work of the Lord and in the church. And then you begin to miss them. You make a call, you write a note, they quit. They quit. Why? Well, maybe it's because they thought that uh, with prosperity they didn't need God. Or maybe they thought that with the loss of prosperity God didn't care for them anymore. They misunderstand the gospel, misunderstood the gospel. Maybe they drifted away for other reasons. Uh, let, let me point out this. The race that Paul is talking about here is not a race we run against other people. I'm not competing with you. You ought not to be competing with anybody. That's not the kind of race he's talking about. Who am I competing with? I'm competing with the potential that's in Buckner Fanning. That's where the contest is. I'm competing with the man I know I ought to be, and the man I want to be, and the man I can be by the empowering of the Spirit of God in my life. That's where the competition is. That's where the race is. It's not with each other. It's with our own potential. And sometimes when we are not living up or making an attempt to live up to our own potential, we're hesitant to blame ourselves. So what do we do? We blame others. That's human nature. As Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. Somebody else's fault. My parents' fault. Or the culture I grew up in. Or the church. Or the pastor. Or the Christian world. We try to find some convenient scapegoat for our own disobedience. Get to going in the wrong direction. You're not going to win. And finally, you can't win if you quit. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy, 4th chapter, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. It's important to hear what he said, but it's equally important to hear what he's not saying. He did not say he fought a perfect fight because he hadn't. He earlier had said, I count not myself to have arrived yet, but forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I run, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I keep at it. I haven't fought a perfect fight, but I've fought a good one. I gave it my best shot. Have you? Am I? He didn't say he fought a perfect fight. He didn't even say he won. He just said, I did the best I could with what I had. And God's help. Fought a good fight. I finished the course, he said. He didn't say he came in first. He just said he finished. That's the key. You know, winners don't always come in first. Winners do not always come in first. Sometimes the last shall be first and are. Oh, we were talking last night, and I, I got to thinking about and some of you will remember this, those of you who are sports fans, um, the... Uh, Wide World of Sports, you know the theme song and the, and the film they show on the Wide World of Sports? Do you remember when it was on? The thrill of what? Thrill of victory and the what? Agony of defeat. Okay. How many of you, I don't, so I'm not putting you on the spot. How many of you remember the film they showed for the thrill of victory? How many of you remember what you see on the screen when it comes to the agony of defeat? Right, hundreds and hundreds of hands. That guy that just wipes out there on that, on that ski jump, and you wonder if he survived. Well, he did. We don't remember the guy who won. We remember the guy who gave his best and wiped out. Some of you, have, like I've seen film of the, the Olympics in, in past years, and it was such an old film, it was in black and white, but it's indelibly etched upon my mind in, in living color. Do you remember that film? It was the, it was the marathon, and the, the winners had come in, and the medals were being given, and others were finishing, and they were waiting around. There was one guy still out there trying to make it. Do you remember this film? And he finally staggered into the Olympic Stadium. I see Gary DeLone nodding his head over there. This guy, and he would fall down. It was dark. The winners had gone home, showered, gone to eat. And here was this guy, laboring along, falling. And people around the, the, uh, the field, the track, would run out to him, and they knew that if they helped him, he would be disqualified. So they couldn't touch him. But you could just see them instinctively reaching out to him, wanting to help him. And I know with their words, they were saying, get up, get up, you can do it, you can make it. A great cloud of witnesses. You can do it. You can make it. Come on. And he staggered to his feet and go a few more feet, 
and fall. And once he turned and started so disoriented, he turned and started to go in the wrong direction. And they couldn't touch him. They just said, you know, this way, this way, you're headed in the wrong direction. And he finally stumbled across the finish line. Who was the winner in those Olympic Games? I don't know who finished first, but I know who finished last, but won the prize. You'll never win if you quit. Paul said, Demas has forsaken me. He loved this world so much. He's a quitter. In the book of the Revelation, you will read the description of those who inhabit the lake of fire. And it surprises me, the order of the words, that the cowardly and unbelieving shall have their part in the lake of fire. He put cowardice ahead of unbelief. Quitters. Cowards. Who throw in the towel. Who quit. Remember, we are encompassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. My mother and father have both been dead a number of years. I believe they're both with the Lord because they walked with Him here and were a profound influence upon me. I wish every, every person could have Christian parents like I had. I know some of you did. Probably many of you didn't. But I believe my mother and father know exactly what's going on here. I believe that those who've gone on and preceded us into the stadium, the celestial stadium, are watching us there on the track and on the playing field as we endeavor to be faithful to the Lord. And I believe they're pulling for me just like those folks were pulling for that guy that fell in the marathon. Come on, get up. You can do it. You can make it. You can finish. And I don't know... Who's in heaven watching you today? Maybe your mother, if you had a godly Christian mother. Your father, a Sunday school teacher, a coach, a friend, a business associate. But somebody that was instrumental in your own personal experience with Christ, but is now with the Lord. They're watching you. They're pulling for you. Are they proud of you? Is our Lord, whom we are told, endured the cross, despising the shame because of the joy that was set before him and has done this for us? Is he pleased with us? Not if we don't begin. Not if we run in the wrong direction. Not if we quit. Pablo Morales carried the torch into the Olympic Stadium Friday night. Who is Pablo Morales? He won multiple gold medals at the Olympic Games in Barcelona two years ago. If you watch those Olympics, you saw his father seated in the stands for the swimming events. His father's wife, Pablo's mother had died recently 
and was not able to come to the game. So Mr. Morales, do you remember, had a picture of her with him in the stands. And while his son was swimming, a son that they didn't expect would even make the team because they thought he was too old. Won multiple gold medals because he knew somebody else was pulling for him. A lot of people are pulling for you today to trust the Lord, to recommit your, yourself to his work and his church and his ministry in the world to come in a rededication of your life begin now today is the day now is the time the gun is sounded the race has begun you start